Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. This series of 20 Not Something is sponsored by Swirls and Curls, your go-to luxury baked goods brand. Any of you who know me well will understand my infatuation with cakes and cookies. But what's even more impressive is when a brand can deliver top quality first class products which still taste fresh and delicious with a warm home-baked touch. Swirls and Curls is a small business run by the lovely Kirsty, and her beautifully decorated cakes and sugar cookies are the perfect gift for a partner, friend, family member, or for just treating yourself. They are incredible value for money, look fantastic, and taste even better. Head over to Swirls and Curls on Instagram to feast your eyes and stomachs on their wide range of products, and go and spoil yourselves and your loved ones this month with some truly tasty treats. Today I am joined by four-time Olympian alpine ski racer Shemi Alcott. Brought up in a household of competitive athletes, the majority of Shemi's 20s were spent goal-setting, training and working towards being the best alpine ski competitor she could be, while the rest of the time was spent recovering from nasty accidents and injuries, of which, as you can expect, there were many. Shemi began her 20s decade faced with a lot of physical and mental adversity. Training hard for multiple events, she completed at the 2006 Turin Olympics and shortly after the competition, Shemi's mum sadly passed away, leaving her to navigate the following years without her primary source of guidance and support. It was a really tough time in Shemi's life that gave her a whole new philosophy and outlook of making the most of every single day. She continued to compete in alpine skiing events across the world and on her off-season travelled with good friend and co-Olympian Julia Mancuso along the way. However, for the majority of her early 20s, Shemi had a huge fear of failure, meaning that she never gave her full potential in races, afraid that if she did and still lost, she would have to face everyone knowing that her best just wasn't good enough. It wasn't until 2008 where Shemi hit a turning point and delivered her best performance so far at the Alpine Ski World Cup in Solden. From that moment, Shemi vowed to take more risks in her sport many of which actually didn't pay off, resulting in copious amounts of nasty injuries, but ultimately teaching her the importance of leaving no stone uncovered and giving 100% in everything she does. Shemi is now a multi-alpine ski champion, mum of two, successful broadcaster and presenter, a coach and an inspirational speaker. A truly impressive list. Her 20s journey just goes to show that a fear of not being good enough is in fact the main reason that prevents us from being that good in the first place. It is only when we release those insecurities that we can truly reach our full potential. Shemi, welcome to 20 Not Something. Thank you so much. I still kind of think I'm still in my 20s. I stopped I stopped <laughs> counting birthdays when I finished my 20s because when I was younger, I've always been the youngest. I've got younger, I've got older brothers and in the race team, I was always the youngest. And now I'm like, no, 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 I'm still there. And then when you said that to me, I was like, oh my God, I've got to look back. And actually the 20s were quite a long time ago. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Switzerland. I would actually give anything to be okay. in the in the mountains right now. <laughs> I know, sorry. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a much more normal way of living for me than every what everyone's going through back home. And I salute you all for your Aww. perseverance and, Aww. you know, 
what you're having to go through. Oh, thank you. So I'll kick things off by asking you the same question I ask everyone. And that is, when you were looking into your 20s decade, can you remember what the one thing you wanted the most was? Success. I was incredibly driven, but I was also really confused and um, insecure in how to achieve my success. I went about it the wrong way and um, I felt a huge amount of expectation and pressure from all the copious amounts of sponsors that I had and my family. And there were a lot of people dedicating a lot to my career. Um, mm-hmm. And I was performing and training, but I could never find that winning point in races. So I was really confused because I knew that in my heart, I thought I was doing everything I could do to be the very best at my sport, but I was still underperforming. Right. I'm really glad that you raised that because I think it's so true. We've so many, you know, 20 somethings go in and they, and they think, oh, I really want to be successful, but what does success even mean? And nobody tells you how to go about that, you know, like there is no formula for it. No, and for me, like looking back, success at the time was, was about winning. But I think for me, in hindsight, success was having this incredible awareness by the end of my 20s of what I needed to do to be my very best. You know, some people never reach that. And I think I had to go through some tough times in order to get there. And and that is what life's about. It's about learning who you are and being honest with who you are. And so many of us put on a facade of who we think the world wants us to be. And I did that for a long time. Um, and I wasn't my very best. It wasn't a very satisfactory way to live because I was you know, choosing to, to be okay when I could have been amazing. Mm, yeah, for sure. Did, did you always know that skiing was something that you wanted to do? Yeah. Has it always been there? Yeah, I've loved, I still do. I mean, the only reason I've retired was because I was jeopardizing the rest of my life in skiing as a sport, not as a racer. Um, and that's why now I've kind of been so fortunate to fall into coaching and, and being able to present about my passion on TV um, but mm. I've always known that I wanted to be a skier and live my life in the mountains from oh. after 18 months old and it's just the most incredible sport you're out there in nature um, giving it your best and you know we're very spoiled we have lanes and peace marked off for us to go <laughs> as fast as we can and not many people get that opportunity in life and I'm very thankful for it. Gosh, yeah. And like, it's so exhilarating. And the high, the natural high that you get after a day of skiing is just like matched with no other. So yeah, totally relate to that. <laughs> um, let's talk about your early 20s then. So you mentioned that after the Olympics in 2006, um, your mum sadly passed away. And I-, I can't even imagine what that must have been like to go through, especially at that time, you know, with all your rigorous training and trying to find your feet in, in the world. Um, and it must have been really tough. And I just wanted to ask you if it's okay with you to maybe talk a little bit about how you got through that time while juggling everything else that was going on. I mean, my whole career, my mum was my biggest supporter. Um, and not 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 as a pushy parent, as a, you know, I, I know you want to be the best and I will do everything and I will make my sacrifices. You know, I don't know how many weekends of the year my mum actually got to herself because she would spend the whole time with my dad driving me up and down the country racing dry slope races. Um, and, you know, she, she put everything in 
to me and my my passion. Um, and she mm. was a former athlete, so she was a swimmer, um, and she retired from swimming because of injury. So I think any time I got injured, she was really amazing to kind of put me back on track. Um, because I think her biggest regret was that she didn't fight harder post injury. Um, and we just had this amazing understanding. I mean, don't get me wrong. She was an incredibly passionate and at times stubborn <laughs> lady. And, you know, we had a household growing up where we were either, it was a very passionate household. We were either laughing or crying. I always knew that my parents had had an argument because we'd have quiche for dinner and my dad hated quiche. <laughs> so if there was ever my mum in the kitchen making quiche, I was like, oh gosh, awkward dinner time. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I actually... In, in my teens, I was obsessed with athlete autobiographies and I would read them all and think every every elite athlete who's made it to the top and has that extra spark has gone through adversity, has had something mm. happen to them that has given them the edge. And I, and I genuinely felt that in my teens, I didn't have that. I had incredible support from my family, sponsors. I was healthy. Um, I had the wealth and the, the finance behind me to pursue my dreams, which in alpine skiing was really expensive. Um, mm. there, wasn't, there wasn't a reason for me not to win. So I, I felt like that was something that I was trying to find. But you never, you never actually want to find adversity. It finds you. No. Um, yeah. And I guess that's what happened um, after my second Olympics at Turin. It was, it's kind of an amazing story. I'll go back to the last time I saw my mum. Um, because it was a big turning point in my career. I'd been looking for that growth mindset and that confidence to charge forever. Um, and the downhill in Turin, the weather was horrendous. And um, I didn't have a very good ranking at the world in the world at the time. And my coach said to me, you know what, today you have the choice. You can choose to be scared or you can choose to ski fast. Now, there's no golden nugget of information in that at all. He just said, right, the choice is yours. Whatever you do for the next two minutes of your life, you have control over and something something clicked within me. I was like, right, I'm going to charge, even though the visibility is terrible and, you know, I, I shouldn't be competitive here. Um, I'm going to go for it. And and I had the most amazing run. And actually for one minute and 20 of that Olympic downhill, I was in podium place. Um, and then I made a mistake wow. and I came 11th and I was still really ecstatic. And it was a really amazing day because it was actually the last time my family would all be together. So I got down to the bottom and, you know, everyone was there. And uh, and that was the last time I saw my mum. I remember after the race, I had to go and do media. And I said goodbye to her. And she was getting on this bus in uh, in Turin. And, uh, and then I drove back a, a few months later at the end of the season. I drove back home. It's a big drive, you know, 12-hour drive from Europe with all my stuff from the winter. And I remember I had a lot of coffee. And I got home and there was a note on my kitchen table saying, I hope you had a safe drive. See you in the morning. Um, here are some daffodils because my mum loved daffodils at Easter time. Um, and then that was the night that she died. So I never got to see her. And it was it was crazy. But in a way, looking back, she was the most vivacious um, lover of life. That, mm. that the fact that no one knew she was ill and she never played the victim and she lived hard and it was over so quickly. She, she wouldn't have wanted to, to be ill or be seen to be ill. She was an incredibly strong woman. Um, and obviously there was a huge amount of shock. I found out actually when I woke up the next morning, I had a text from a friend saying, may the angels be with her. 
that was all the text anyway. So I burst out crying because you just know when something like that has happened. And then I had another message from my brother saying they'd been trying to call me all night and I had lots of voicemails, but I had a text saying, don't listen to the voicemails, get in the car and come over to Putney. And it was a, you know, a 20 minute drive. And I remember I just cried the whole way and I got there and and my other brother was on on the airplane over from New York and yeah, it was just, it was crazy. It was, you know, yeah. one moment she's there and then she's just not. And, but and she was 58 when she died, which is way too, too young. So young, so young. But yeah. she lived more than most people do in their whole lives. And that's what I made peace with. And it taught me a huge life lesson because, you know, from that moment on, I was like, well, life is so precious. You can't wait for it to come. You've got to attack every minute and every day. And, and that I'm still like that now. Because I, I, you know, you never know what's around the corner, and yeah. uh, if you have an opportunity, and I have so many amazing opportunities, I just grasp them, and you know, I'm a yes person. I'm saying I'm doing far too much, but I, you just don't know how long you've got. Yeah, gosh, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that to to come out the other side and have that point of view of the world. But what do you think that then? impacted the rest of your decade with that that sort of mindset and um, well the first thing that happened was people actually thought that I would retire from the sport um and this mm. is a big backstory but they thought that I wasn't skiing for me that I was skiing for my mum so me saying that she was really supportive and not pushy a little while ago the world saw her as pushy because I wanted to win more than anything in the world and my mum quickly saw that that was a really unattractive quality for a young girl to have and it wouldn't make me popular with my peers so she let me hide behind her and you know I'd go to races on dry slope and everyone's in baggy tracksuits and I would be wearing skin tight clothing because I wanted to win I wanted to be the best and I used to say to my mum made me wear them so I hid behind her my whole life so when when she passed away people like look I wonder if this is it for Shemi and so what I did was actually a week after she died and I I, it's crazy that I made this decision but I was born with banana shaped bones in my feet so I decided to have surgery on my feet that I needed to have quite a long time and so I was in a wheelchair for three months um after she passed away and I was like, right, I'm going to make myself take time away to see how much I miss it, to see why I'm doing this, to see why I put myself through this roller coaster of sport. And, you know, if it comes back to I was doing it for her, then, you know, people had a point. Two days after I had surgery, I had this epiphany that I was never doing this for anyone but myself and that how amazing my mum had been to, to kind of take that unpopularity uh, as a push yeah. mum so that I could live a kind of more normal life without without judgment. Mm. That's really interesting that she felt that you as a child um, didn't want to have that almost label on you that you wanted to win and that you were going to be really pushy. I think that's really interesting. In your note to me, you said as well that in the early parts of your 20s, um, you used to only give 80% for fear of mm. not being able to be your best self. And I'm so glad that you raised that because I think so many people can wholly relate to that feeling. I certainly can of not wanting to give everything just in case it doesn't go to plan. Um, I mentor, uh, there's a really, you know, dangerous, uh, vicious circle going on in our society right now. Cause I mentor quite a few young female athletes and they don't want to be seen to be trying their best because it's not cool. 
and mm. I see how driven they are and how competitive they are, but they don't want to be that pushy uh, young girl and it's quite sad actually because mm. as a boy as a boy some of the guys I see who are driven and they say they want to win we go you know what great that's such good confidence whereas when a girl says it it's like oh gosh she's got an ego and it's horrendous yeah. so yeah. I think that's something that first of all we really really need to change and uh, and secondly it's just it, it's really sad and I think people need to go out there and say you know I want to win and looking back at my 20s I always wanted to win but I had this cloud over me where I wasn't able to perform at my best ability because I had this I was so scared of this Mm. fear of letting everyone down this fear of failure I had all these people investing emotionally financially in my career and if I didn't win then I'd have to tell them all that I just wasn't good enough and so instead of that I I skied at 80% and I kept 20% in my back pocket knowing that when I came down and I wasn't winning, I could, I could make peace with myself because I knew that I wasn't going my best. And it, mm. it's a really dangerous, vicious cycle to get in. And I, you know, I was the best in Britain and on the world scale, I was top 20 to 30. It was okay. But I never, I never had that confidence to unleash and take risk um, until one day, um, it, as you said. So Turin, the downhill there in the Olympics in 2006, when I came 11th, that was a starting point for what happened in, 2008 and sold in and basically I had a really bad first run and you only get a second run if you're top 30 and I was 31st um and so we started leaving the race and then we found out a girl had been disqualified so we turned around and we went back up and I stood in that start gate and I had no expectations for the first time because I genuinely didn't believe that anything good can come of this run because I was so ill prepared with what happened after the first run. So I just charged and launched and it was the most imperfect run I've ever had in my life, which was really important for me because that meant it was fast. I'd always tried to be this perfectionist in everything. Mm. You know, I want people to like me. I'm a people pleaser. I also want to be perfect with everything. But actually in a sport like skiing, you've got to just let it go and you just got to charge. And obviously there's that fine, the really small line between success and injury because you've got to push mm. yourself, you've got to take risk, and injury is, is a result of that. And um, but it was a and you know, after that day, I had loads of injuries. In fact, on paper, I guess my career probably looked better before, but for me, I knew that every time I pushed out that start gate, I was pushing out to win and be my best. And it was a much easier ride to take when those injuries came because I knew that, you know, I was pushing it. Yeah. And you were being authentic to your true self, which, you know, as we were talking about earlier, is a really hard thing to do. Um, I guess when, when you did do that race and you came out the other side and you realized like that shift must have just been phenomenal for you. Like it must have changed your whole game. It was great. I remember I was standing in the finish area and I was in the winner's enclosure for so long and I was just blown away. I kept beating girl after girl after girl. And and my coaches came down and I was crazy happy and, and they were quite mellow. And I was like, are you guys not, really? you know, you're not stoked about this? And they said, of course we are, but we knew you had it in you. We believed it all along. We <laughs> waiting for it. Whereas I, that it took that for me to start believing in myself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was quite great, actually. I knew that I had great coaches because they weren't on that same kind of surprised <laughs> happiness yeah. level as I was. 
which just goes to show that it all does come back to self-belief. Like you can have people surround, you know, surrounding you who have full faith in you, like your coaches did. But until you realize your true potential, no, like nothing's going to change, I guess. You have to be the one to find that growth mindset yourself mm. to believe that you can smash through the ceiling of your capabilities and you can have people telling you all the time. I mean, that's what's one thing I think is your parents are amazing, but they have to believe in you. You know, it's mm. as someone external starts believing in you. That's when you know that you can make it in, in sport and life. For sure. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Life. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, moving away from skiing a little bit then you also traveled a fair amount in your twenties. Um, yeah. What what do you think traveling taught you about yourself? Corny question, I know, but I think it's it has a different impact on uh, different people. It taught me to calm down um, mm. because every holiday I organized. So as I, I mentioned to you, my best friend, Julia Mancuso, um, she was also single. And when we got to the end of our seasons, we just, in fact, we started planning our adventures in about January when we knew we had to get through kind of a hard winter. Um, which, <laughs> You know, she was a very successful athlete and she lives for experience. So she would spend a lot of money on us going to these crazy places and doing these crazy things. Um, and we took it in turns to, to organize the holidays. And every one I organized, we were so dead at the end. I remember we did Thailand in two and a half weeks and I had wow. traveling every single day. We didn't spend more than one night in one place. I remember we got these boat barges um, that go super slow and you can sleep on them because it's really cheap to travel that way. <laughs> it was just exhausting. But I was like, we've got to see every temple. We, you know, you know, you get the, the lovely string bracelets to remind yeah. you. Uh, I remember we had a whole arm of them and Julia's like, isn't this enough? Isn't this enough? <laughs> um, so, so I learned... I learned that I don't know. I just got this. I've got this worry that the world's such an amazing place, and that we won't be able to see it all. So when we're in places, we've got to see everything. Because I mm. don't want to revisit a place, even if I think I've gone to paradise. I don't really want to go back. I will go back, but I think it's really important to always try something new, even though you think it might not be better than somewhere you've seen before. Um, yeah. But it was amazing doing that in my twenties with a girlfriend because there was no pressure, no relationship, love pressure. Um, unfortunately, it does mean that my husband wants to go to all these places, and I'm like, "Oh, I've actually been there." Oh, I've been there. <laughs> and the one thing I saved for him <laughs> was I always knew that I wanted to do safari on my honeymoon. So I was like, "Julia, we're not going to do safari ever because that's what I'm saving for a first experience." <laughs> with my, with the <laughs> well, speaking about your husband, actually, I I um, wanted to bring up the fact that in your notes me you said that you actually were dating and then you broke up for a while and then you actually got back together again and that was it and yeah. I wanted to talk about it because I think that happens so much in this decade for a lot of people um and I'm curious as to how much you think love is impacted by timing and like both wanting the same things at the same time I mean for us massively when we first dated I was 23 and quite worldly and he was 18 um so I was one of his first girlfriends and um, you know, I, I think I was a bit more confident than he was. Um, and we just weren't on the same page. And then I was in another relationship, which was a good relationship. But at the end of the relationship, I realized that I was still in love with Dougie. Mm. And, um, and when we got back together, you know, I, I knew him, I knew everything about him. So when you're making a choice to reinvest in someone, to get back with someone, um, then you're really choosing them for life because, you know, that if, 
if, if the reason that you broke up isn't there anymore, then then that is the person you're meant to be with. Um, and the age difference also was a lot less the second time when we started. Yeah. <laughs> so just, what, what was, how much later was the second time? Uh, three years. Three years. Okay. Yeah. He got yeah. had relationships and found out about himself. I think that was really important. Um, because I knew that when we got back together, I was like, you know, this, this is, I think the one, this is it. And it was really important for me to be with someone who has the same passion for life as me. And I love the mountains and, and that passion didn't have to be in the mountains, but I just wanted someone as obsessed and passionate as me. And he was a downhiller at the time and, and he was the same. And it was just amazing to gel over that and our kind of emotions attached to results. And, in you know, you find a, very intense relationship really quickly when you have that level of understanding. Mm. How did you manage juggling that relationship and, you know, relationships with friends in general with, with your sport? Cause I can imagine that must've been quite tough to balance. I am useless at it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, nowadays we've got zoom and we've got all these other ways of communicating. Um, but back then, you know, I, I talked to everyone because I've always been the only girl on the ski team um when we went to races I just talked to everyone I I think people and I think that makes me quite good in as a semi-journalist now in tv interviewing because I love hearing people's stories I'm that one person on the tube who's trying to make eye contact with everyone (laughs) Um, and everyone goes oh she's a weirdo let's look down at our phones and because I just think everyone's got a story to tell and some people don't know they've got a story to tell and that's the best story to get out um, my husband mm. has a good story to tell. I don't even know why this is a, a, a follow-on from me starting about him. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think because of that, uh, I, when I'm with people, I'm really social. Uh, when I'm not, I can, you know, I can spend a year not talking to one of my closest friends and then we'll get back together and it'll be absolutely fine because they know that's how I am. Mm. useless <laughs> I think those are the best friendships though when you both have a mutual understanding of like we're both really busy our lives are going completely like hectic directions but we still have time for each other and we still mean a lot to each other um and I think sometimes that social media and and even the media in terms of like films and stuff how they depict um specifically female friendships as being you have to rely on each other for everything and be in constant communication like it's just not it's not real. I'm not needy enough for that. I, <laughs> I I want my closest female friends to be incredibly busy and successful and selfish almost. Mm. And they don't have time to check in every day. And that's actually who I've surrounded myself. I used to be a bit of a boy, a tomboy. So I had loads of guy friends. And then actually the older I'm getting, the more girlfriends I'm getting. Um, and I really value my friendships with them. And they're all incredibly successful, different, unique people but then not none of them I feel like need me and vice versa Mm, mm, yeah um and so also you're now a coach as well which um you seem to really be loving what what is the most rewarding thing about that avenue of work for you now and so I got into coaching not because I want to make incredible skiers um but obviously my knowledge is with that in mind but I I want to use sport to mold amazing young people and I think sport can teach you incredible life skills especially oh, true. like yeah. skiing you know you've got to fall over to know your limit you have mm-hmm. to do that um you've got to be able to pick yourself up and go again and have the confidence to come back from injury and I just think I I with Dougie you know our, our business is called Carpe Diem Coaching 
because uh, that's what my mum used to say to me every day, seize the day. And that's what I do now. I mean, even now I'm in in Switzerland, I'm in a solo bubble, seven weeks. I'm the most social person, you know, and everyone's really worried about me. But I'm like, you know what? This is a day I'll never have again. I, I can guarantee there's mums at home in lockdown with two young kids like I am thinking I would love some alone time. And, mm. and it's hard to not feel guilty for that. But I'm doing yoga. I'm meditating. I've read a book, which I haven't read for five years. So I've been too busy. <laughs> Um, uh, but I'm really disappointed in my choice of book. But anyway, that's another story. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, I just, I, I think that you've got to just be true to where you are right now. And at the beginning, when I was here alone, I was really worried about how the external world and how, how Dougie would see if I was doing yoga and everything. And then, you know, he's got enough confidence in me to say, this is your time, you know. You, you've mm. got this time. You've got quiet time. Do what you've always wanted to do. And don't feel guilty for it because there's, there's nothing else you can do. This is the world right now. Uh, honestly, I admire your passion and just general thirst for life, Shemi. It's giving me life. I love it. <laughs> oh, that's good. I mean, the, the thing is what I've learned is just every day you're, you're going to go to bed thinking, right, I made this mistake today or I won this today. And whatever happened, you've got to reflect and think this has made me a better person. I actually live by this great philosophy saying I never lose, either I win or I learn. Um, and I think that's really important to everyone, not just athletes, not just people pursuing competition as their passion. Um, mm. But we've, we've all got to go out there and take risks. We are a society of people who's so afraid of mistakes and failure that they just live within themselves. So I think it's really important to, to try things and go, oh, you know what? But then you put your hands up. I did that wrong. Today, for instance, I made a bunch of wrong calls. Um, and, you know, you admit to them, you don't brush them under the carpet, you address them, you think, what could you have done differently next time? And that's how you learn. Cool. We're going to play on to play Millennial Minesweeper now. Um, so I'm just going to read you out a few quotes. And they're all about basically living life um, and 20s stuff and um you've got to tell me whether you agree with them or not okay sound good um so our, our first one is quite topical for what we've been talking about so it's never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game and it's actually a really lame quote it's from a cinderella story with hillary <laughs> duff <I> was- <laughs> Well, I wouldn't want to put that quote with a Cinderella story. Um, I, love it. I love it, as, as you yeah. can tell, because it's very similar to how I live my life. But I think that's really important. There's a great Roosevelt quote saying, um, never live in that grey area uh, as well between success and disaster. It was, it's just a really good quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it did get me thinking. I, why are we all so scared of striking out? Like. I think because we all, we know, we're drenched. <laughs> Media tells us what perfect is and we want to be perfect from how we look to how we act. Um, mm. We don't want to be kooky. We don't want to be different. We want to fit the mold. And it's really sad. And I think we need to, you know, <sighs> celebrate our uniqueness instead of all wanting to look a certain way and act a certain way and talk a certain way. Mm. Do you think that is changing now with the sort of rise of people realizing that? 
Yeah, I think so. I actually think in yeah. lockdown, a lot of people are looking inside themselves and making a new existence. And mm. I think it's working for a lot of people. It, that it's, it's giving them the confidence to be more who they are. And yeah. the more people who do it, the more people come out of their shells and go, oh, my gosh, I'm a weirdo. Check this out. <laughs> that's not weird. That's, that's you being creative and unique. Yeah, 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 so true. Um, our second one is everything is not going to be okay. It never is. It isn't okay now. Change, by definition, changes things. It makes some things better and some things worse, but everything is never okay. Poor. I know. Right, I was like it because it's, it's that, you know, you're not searching for perfection, but it's so negative. I know. So that's Seth yeah. Godin. That's a blog post by Seth Godin. And I was shocked by it because this podcast is basically the opposite of that. It's basically yeah. trying to reassure everyone that it is going to be okay. Um, um, but maybe, maybe that's what I mean. The other angle of going, you know what? Nothing is as rose tinted as you think it is. Mm. I mean, even like new, I remember motherhood. I remember so many of my friends were struggling to conceive and I'd given birth and I was trying to, I went back to work after two weeks in the mountains. I was breastfeeding and I was so tired, so tired, but I couldn't tell anyone I was tired because it was supposed to be the most magical time of my life. Mm. So if someone, mm. you know what, it's, it, nothing's really okay. Mm. But I don't yeah. like, like the way, so, so, that, so I'm just, I'm an eternal optimist, right? So I'm trying to find a positive in that, but I wouldn't have written it that way at all. No, I do understand what it's saying that like it's finding it's brave to shun faux reassurance is what it's saying. And that's a critical step to making change, Yeah, um, which I understand. But I think there's a balance to be struck and that just went way to the other side. (laughs) I think dreaming is okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Goal setting really high shows ambition and confidence um so Mm. yeah yeah not so yeah okay our final one is the cinderella quote (laughs) (laughs) it's because i was watching it last night i know so sad valentine's day i watched a cinderella story (laughs) hold my hands up um (laughs) um, yeah so our final one is i am a great believer in luck and i find the harder i work the more i have of it that's quite a famous one by Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. So I like that because you make your own luck. You know? Yeah, I was going to ask, do you believe that then? Do you believe that you make your own luck? Yeah, I do. I do. You've got yeah. to go out there and get it. You've got to grasp it. You know, nothing nothing in life worth fighting for comes easily. So mm. I think anyone who feels like they've achieved their success can look back and go, God, I earned that. You know, I mm. grafted for that. Um, and I, and I hate that when people say, Oh, you're lucky to ro- fall into this. You're lucky. No, 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 no. I've, yeah. I've, I've made this happen. Um, I mean, having said that, I'm very fortunate to have lived a life through sport and that my parents had the financial backing to even start this for me because of that of course, yeah. different. So, so that, that luck has helped me reach my destiny. Mm. I think I created my own. Mm, mm, yeah I mean it's a it's a toss-up between sort of privilege and you know taking that privilege and making what you can of it yeah 100% 100% yeah um I struggle with um the whole hard work pays off thing because 
there is no definition of what hard work actually means. And I think I've struggled with that a lot in my 20s where it's like people say, oh, just work harder. Mm. And I'm like, well, does that mean work longer? Does that mean, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, you know, for me, work harder. I did everything I could and I was still searching for perfection, which doesn't exist in the world that I chose. And it was inhibiting my overall performance. So maybe mm. I should have worked less and just not given... <laughs> a flying <laughs> monkeys and, and then I would have felt less pressure and expectation and been freer and then won mm. Mm. but you can't go back and change it now so <laughs> I can help change other people's view and I, yeah. I mentor an athlete who's very similar to how I was and she wants to be perfect at everything she also mm. wants to be a really fast skier and I'm like okay well let's let's change your perception of perfection mm. Let's change your perception of perfection. That was going to be my next Merlin Minesweeper quote, I think. <laughs> like that. <laughs> quote, Shemi Alcott. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Shemi, for coming on the podcast. It's been so lovely to chat. Thank you. Well, thanks for reminding me that I still remember my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's been fun to reminisce. Yeah, it's lovely. Lovely. Thank you. Thanks again, Shemi, for coming on the podcast. If you guys at home enjoyed this episode, then feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. And while you're there, why not give us a cheeky follow on Instagram as well at 20 Not Something to be the first to find out about our upcoming guests and future episodes. This podcast wouldn't sound as slick as it does without our wonderful composer and producer, Pete Haff. So a big shout out to Pete. Thank you for working your magic. And we'll be back again next week with another brilliant guest. So I'll see you very soon. Mm-hmm.